0: There you all are now, back from your you holidays, huh? I was going to say, after two weeks off, it's kind of two weeks of, uh, of no podcast, but it wasn't exactly two weeks off for me, but I hope wherever you are, that you're enjoying yourself, you've enjoyed and are enjoying your summer, it's not over yet, right? So we're in Sweden now, so that basically means, like, the last three weeks of July, you do absolutely nothing, and in August, you do kind of 10%-ish, unless you're working in teaching and you have to start round about the middle. But, you know, take your time, lads, right? Don't be in any hurry now to get back onto that hamster wheel and uh, hemta, lemna, bringing them to doggies, collecting them with doggies, making the dinner, that kind of thing. Take it easy, right? Don't, uh, Especially the job bit, right? Ease back into it now. There's plenty of time during the winter when there's nothing else to be done. But for now, get around to enjoying the last of the fine weather. I have been in England. It was it was grand uh, I was over there for the women's Euros and those of you who've known me or have listened to this podcast or the Ironman in Stockholm podcast or any other bloody podcast uh, will know how much I enjoy women's football and I've been covering it for years I thought it was going to be there longer but I was working with the Norwegian national team uh, they had a goal Of making the semi-final And they didn't Because in their second game They got hammered 8-0 by England And that was pretty much All she wrote Lovely Swedish coach there In Martin Quelgren, But my god Were they ever outclassed By England And that's uh, The following game then They lost 1-0 to Austria And that meant me Coming home And it was like Hang on a second here I wasn't really expecting that You know so um but as usual, the devil makes work for idle hands and I found plenty of work to do. There was, um, there's always plenty of work in journalism to be doing. Plenty of planning to be going on, lads. And there's a load of that going on at the moment. Uh, so I got stuck in all that. And now I have to replace the roof on our little summer house that we bought a few years ago. So all the carpenters in the chat, all the boys are turning off their phones now because they're afraid i are going to ring them. I'll try not to, boys. I'll only ring as if I get into trouble. But that will be the remainder of my summer. Uh, there's a new podcast coming up, I think I mentioned that before, for the global Irish community that we'll get to, but we don't want to be stressing. We want to be taking it easy here now. And uh, the best way to do that is to get involved in nature and to really learn to appreciate it. So this week's guest is one of those people who can help you do that. It's Alan Dalton. Alan is from Dublin. Uh, a bartender here for many 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 years in the dublin area. and as such probably the first person that most of you who ever visited stockholm met when they got here right alan would have been the lad behind the bar there uh, you would have asked him about your first job or you would have asked him where you should go to do this after the other and uh, that was before this podcast exists obviously and uh, alan was uh, an agony aunt he was everything to everybody at that time but he's also very keen on nature and in particular on bird watching and fishing and that so um I'd been in and out on Facebook publicising various podcasts or bits and pieces and I saw that he uh, he was doing this thing during the summer and I said I'd have to get in touch with him because it's fascinating, it's one of those things... Um, that, you know, I think everybody's kind of interested in, in their own little way but they don't know enough about it to have an opinion so I figured I'd get them on here to explain what the deal is how the whole thing of board watching works and why it's important because we've seen a lot over the last weeks about you know the environment and of course you'll remember there's some very very hot days here unseasonably hot days here in Sweden over the last few weeks and what all that means for us but uh, before we get into all that remember this is a listener supported podcast you can support it patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in stockholm You can swish a few bob if you've left over after your holidays to 123-2424-166, 123-2424-166. Or you can uh, email a sponsorship request or an idea to Irish and Podcast at gmail.com A big thanks to our friends at the Irish Chamber of Commerce in Sweden for their involvement in the most recent episode. We spoke to Owen O'Connor who worked for Enterprise Ireland here for a couple of years and now he's gone off to take a job in London. He's actually moved now I think it was last week, just a couple of days ago he took the flight out to London so he's setting himself up there. But he talked to me about his time being over here in Stockholm what that meant to him. And uh, one of the big part of that was being part of the Irish Chamber of Commerce in Sweden. They very generously agreed uh, to help out with some of the podcasts uh, that will have a more business focus, and we'll have more of them in the coming weeks as things start to ramp up again. Not least on getting yourself set up and established in Sweden, and if you are getting into business here, the kind of things that you, you can hope for and expect, both from the chamber but also from the state agencies, and we'll get to all that as we go. Uh, I would like to see more companies getting involved here because this is, as I say, a community-supported podcast and companies are a part of that community. So if you're doing any work over here whatsoever and you have a little bit left in the sponsorship budget that didn't go towards Gaelic Games or Irish Music or a festival in your town this year, get in touch with me. I'll put that money to good use for you, boys and girls. Um, one last thing, before we get into the conversation, I suppose it does have something to do with flying. You will now know that the SAS strike is over, right? I mentioned it on the podcast uh, just before, as this one was getting underway there. They reached an agreement with the pilots so the strike is over. I'm not sure, I haven't been talking to too many people in the community now, but no doubt there are many of the listeners of this podcast whose summer plans were affected or maybe even ruined uh, by the SAS strike. The pilots went on strike there because the company is in a reconstruction they're trying desperately to survive and they're doing all sorts of things to cut costs. One of those things was that they're trying to sort of offshore and in inverted commas, pilots jobs from really comfortable, really secure jobs in Sweden to, you know, one of the companies I think was based in Ireland that they're looking for people to take care uh, take employment with right and it's really unfortunate when these things happen because you know everybody who listens to this knows that you know i would be a union man i'd be a working man i do believe in the right to strike but it's also fucking horrible when it impacts the listener to this podcast it impacts you know you know, you may not have been home since the pandemic and it's just an awful thing to have happen it happened it's over now um the sas are in what they call chapter 11 protection in the united states which means that it's going to be harder to make them bankrupt for the time being so as i say you're still free to go and um, book your tickets you can do that now with a certain amount of confidence it looks like the industrial dispute is over certainly for the time being it looks like it's not coming back for the time being now there wouldn't be a whole lot of cheap flights out there lads and i'm sure there are people in the embassy and uh, in the irish community here who are hoping maybe the ryanair or the Aer Lingus or that norwegian or that somebody will see the gap in the market here for affordable flights it's probably not going to happen this side of christmas so um if you're booking your flights, I think you can be sort of comfortable enough in the knowledge that they're going to happen, but they're not going to be cheap for the foreseeable future. So uh, take that into account. If you see anything, let me know. Let the rest of the community know in the various different Facebook groups out there in Edinburgh, in Gothenburg, in Lulio, the WhatsApp groups that are going. So if you happen to see a good deal on flights to Ireland, do let people know. And of course, again, no more than this, podcast is sometimes a little bit Stockholm-centric. We're often a little bit Dublin-centric. But if you see flights to Belfast or to Shannon or to anywhere else, uh, or routes That might be sort of, uh, Worth getting on You know Um our land itself I'm not really sure I've been trying to talk To somebody up there For the last little while But they're not in any hurry, hurry To talk to me about The situation there The times I've been through it This summer I avoided it completely Going to Oslo I took a train And a bus there At the end of June I had to go over there To work for a day And I, I flew back Alright but But um, I didn't. I just didn't. I didn't, Couldn't stand there for like three hours in security queues and that kind of thing. So I took the bus and train and, and, and did it that way instead. You know. So we'll try to find out what the story is there. But in the meantime, let's uh, have a little chat with Alan Dalton. Again, a person I've known for many, many years, and I've known of his interest for many, many years in both birding and fishing. And it was brilliant to have a chance to sit down and talk to somebody so knowledgeable. And even though we talked for quite a long time, we felt like we're only scratching the surface of this. So uh, it may be something that uh, we'll return to in the near future. But here he is. Here's Alan Dalton talking about birding and all things nature. Alan, what was that beautiful bird song that we just heard there?
1: Uh, That was a thrush nightingale which I recorded in Angern Reserve just north of Stockholm in May and the bird was singing in the middle of the night so I just left my recorder up against the bush it was singing from and let it record.
0: And how do you go about Collecting those things, Alan, because you mentioned there, this is the fascinating thing. It's like peeling an onion. It was in the middle of the night, right? So, you know, you have a job, you have a family, you have all these things to do. So, do you just wander off with a sandwich in your sound recorder in the middle of the night and go, Oh, I think I'll find me sitting some birds, or how does it work?
1: Pretty much. I just I plan it out at the weekends. I'm off the weekend. So, on that particular occasion, I just headed off just before dusk. Got there just before dusk and just head around and basically i just potter around wherever it is i've decided to go and just see what's what's happening around the reserve or whatever and on that occasion the bird was singing from a small bush in the far side of the reserve so the nice thing about recording at night is there's nobody around obviously and it's quiet, very little traffic and no plain noise that type of thing so it's nice and quiet so it's quite easy then just to leave a recorder very close to the birds and at night they kind of let you get very close they don't it's seem to be too bothered about humans
0: do, do they? Yeah, because like, that was the next thing. I'm thinking of like, you know, if you're recording podcasts and that kind of thing, you want to be really close to the microphone to get good sounds. But is it very hard to get close to animals or to birds? And how do you do it? Do you sort of put the recorder there and then, you know, fuck off for a cup of tea and come back again and see what you got?
1: Yeah, it depends. I have different, I have different microphones. So in this instance, I use what's called a binaural microphone, which you need to get reasonably close, but it's still quite sensitive. So I think that mic was about seven or eight meters away from the bird. But mm. sound carries very well at night. So quite often, if it's during the day, a lot of birds will sing from the same perch, you know, habitually. And they, they'll come back to the same one. So you can just put a microphone close. And it's always good to get a microphone close. Mm. Um, so that's what I do. I'll watch the bird for a while, see where it's singing from, place the mic, and then just sit back and wait. Mm.
0: And when you do that, you have a recording device there, right? But you're dependent on power and batteries. How long can you wait when you're sitting there waiting on a bird to start
1: singing? Well, a lot of tech now is very good. So for example, even with the small zoom recorders now, you'll get five or six hours on them just from a couple of AA batteries. So I mean, you have plenty of time in general. Um, so it's these days, it's, it's quite easy. It's not as difficult as it used to be. Tech has come a long way now, so it's, it's very, very handy.
0: And do you have to sit there then, Alan? You know, if you place the thing, you know, you there's, obviously there's a time stamp on your recording, right? But do you have to sit there and sort of listen through everything? Is there anything in particular now when you're recording that Thrush Nightingale that you're
1: that you're listening out for? Um, well, you just have to watch your levels. It depends. Just set the levels. Hopefully, when you when you put the recorder down, the bird is in the area, and you can set set the levels appropriately. So. It takes a little bit of, you get used to it after well, a little bit of know how, um, but it depends again, like I say, on what mic you're using. So for those mics, you need to get quite close, but they also have what's called a parabola, which is like, I think CIA, the dish that they listen to, you know, with spies and stuff. <laughs> and what that does is it concentrates the sound into the dish. And with that, with that system, you can actually stand 30, 40, 50 meters away from the bird and record.
0: And how would that measure up to the one when you get the microphone, you know, three, four, five meters away? Would that be as good or would it be, you know, just acceptable, so to speak?
1: Well, we're all recording, even in the studio or, you know, out in the field, the closer you can get a mic, the better. You know, the better the quality will be. So that's that's quite often the trick with these things. And um, get the get the mic in as good a position as possible. And that's that's part of the trick really. Do you go to the same three
0: or four places all the time or do you look for new places to go? And how do you find those
1: places where the birds are going to be? Um, I I travel around quite a bit. I do have a favourite sort of five or six venues. Um, But with, with bird species, quite often you have to go to where they are. So at the moment, I think I've recorded about 180 odd species in Sweden. So I'm always looking to add to that. And if there's a bird around, I will check the national database there's, a, there's quite a lot of bird watchers in Sweden and they do report their birds daily so you can get quite a lot of information from the, the national website so if I was looking for say corncrake I'd, I'd watch in May for where birds are being seen and if there's an area where two or three are seen I'll go there to record that species.
0: And um, it's an expensive hobby, Alan, because I like, f- take it from me or actually take it from my missus. Every time she sees me coming in the door with a new microphone, it's fucking murder. But <laughs> do, do you spend a lot of money then on kit, because I know you take pictures of birds as well. And sport and birding are two of the most expensive things that you can fucking photograph, right?
1: Uh, well, like I say, it depends on what you want to spend on microphones. Uh, Technology has come a lot further now in the last few years. So you can buy at the moment, you can buy, you know, very, very sensitive lab mics for less than you know 100 euros a set Mm -hmm. so i've made a couple of sets myself just binaural sets just out of wood wire and just using the actual microphones which i use for laying down you know the stuff at close range the problem is a few hundred euros so Mm -hmm. i'd say it's reasonably expensive again it's what you want to spend on a microphone um i've probably spent about seven or eight hundred euros on my gear but once you have it then you have it you know Mm -hmm.
0: And you, you mentioned the Zoom recorders. Can I ask you, without getting too inside baseball about it, uh, which Zoom recorder do you use for, for making these recordings?
1: Well, I to be the one I use the most for these close-up recordings is the little Zoom HN1, which is very, very cheap. It's about uh, 800 Swedish kroner, about 80 euro.
0: Yeah, And
1: that's an excellent, uh, really little good recorder. It's very small, very portable. You can fit a couple in your pocket. And then I use an old Marantz PDM um, for my parabola which I have a little case for, and that just sits around, basically around my shoulder, so I can carry that around the field. And I think I bought that secondhand at the time for a couple of hundred euros.
0: Hmm. How did you get into that, Alan? Because I always wonder, you know, because I'm sitting here talking to you now, aware of the fact that you, you've forgotten more about boarding than I will ever, ever know, you know? But how did this interest sort of start to grow?
1: Well, as a kid, my father was, was quite into the outdoors. He used to trap finches as a young man in Clontarf in Dublin. Um, As a boy, and I think he, he was quite into birds, you know, as he grew up, he was always aware of them and we used to go out walking when I was a kid, you know, we'd bring down, we were brought up in Dublin, just beside the North Bull Islands. And quite often that's where we'd go for walks, so we'd, we'd jump in the car go down for a walk and it was full of Brent geese and waders and wildfowl. So that kind of sparked my interest and then at about seven or eight years old, he got me a pair of binoculars. And from there, it went from that to joining what was then the Irish Wildbird Conservancy, um, which is now BirdLife Ireland. And they had a North Dublin branch uh, and a young ornithologist group, North Dublin Young Ornithologists. And we just, we met up every couple of Saturdays and went birdwatching to various places. So it took off from there. So we started locally and eventually with the bus trips they organized, we got down to places like the Wexford Slobs, Loch Ness, um Cape Clear islands salty islands so it just went from there really
0: and when you're collecting these sounds that we're hearing here when you're you know you're bird watching you're noting you know the time of the year the species how many there are and that kind of thing what is it what's the purpose of all that information do you share that then with other people is it you know is it you know an environmental resource what's the whole purpose behind it
1: yeah, there's a lot of citizen science now, so there's a lot of databases where people will go online and they will put the records in and, um, for example, in Sweden, it's Portland see. anybody can go on there and have a look and see, you know, what's been seen on any given day. But more importantly, I mean, there's thousands of people using the site and all those records go in there um, and it has become a very, I think there's 30 or 40 years of records there now from thousands of observers. So it's a very useful tool for conservation and stuff, just to see how population trends of various species are. So it is very helpful for, for that kind of thing, just to see how things are doing in general.
0: Is there a big difference, Alan, between the birds you would see at the North Pole, Island and the birds you would see in northern Sweden, where you're sitting outside your little red house talking to me now?
1: Yeah, well, strangely, actually, a lot of the birds that are here in summer might actually winter in, in Dublin. So, for example, the corleos I see here, which breed locally, are quite likely to winter in Britain or Ireland on the estuaries there. So, you know, in, for example, in Dublin, you'll see a large amount of corleos, say, in in Dublin Bay roosting at high tide, and it's quite likely those birds have come from Finland, Norway, Sweden, Estonia, these, these countries where they breed, but because the winters are so harsh here, everything freezes over, they will move for the winter. And because Ireland and England have such a temperate climate in the winter, there's a lot of food there in the estuaries, and that's where they choose to spend the winter for food. Mm. So it's, it's, it's both really that the birds will move and do move. And so basically the birds I'm seeing here could actually, I could be seeing in the winter in Ireland.
0: That's amazing. Is there any? Does anybody ever track these birds? Do they put those little rings on their feet and go? Okay, well, let's check this out. Yeah,
1: there's, there's a lot of ringing going on. Um, a lot of ringing has gone on for the last thirty or forty years, and now they're using um, it's quite exciting actually using these little tiny radio tra- transmitters which they attach to the birds, and that's really shown a lot of stuff that they really didn't expect. So they can follow these birds in real time as they as they migrate. You know, they've put them on things like cuckoos, uh, common swifts, um waders it, it's incredible to see these things moving in real time
0: what, what kind of things have they learned from those rings and for those radio transmitters that they didn't expect to find out
1: well for example it's a bird, that breeds here in northern sweden called great snipe it uh, it breeds up in lapland and they discovered that that bird will fly to sub-saharan africa in one go it doesn't stop uh Jeez. the journey journey takes three to four days so the bird feeds up in the autumn leaves late august early september and will make the flight in two or three days and that has explained as to why they're not really seen in Europe very often they're extremely rare occasionally uh, young birds might be seen or spring birds on the way back way back may stop off around stockholm but generally speaking they couldn't understand why these birds weren't being seen they thought maybe it's because they're so secretive but actually they fly at high altitude over 20,000 feet and they do the whole journey in one go without stopping Jeez. so that was Yeah, it's amazing. That's just one species. And then there was another species, redneck phalarope, which they put them on. And they expected those birds to winter sort of in the Gulf of Oman around that area. But in actual fact, the Scottish birds were going up above Alaska and around the top of America. And they actually spend the winter in the Pacific, Wow! which was a total shock. So these things are all, you know, it's all new information. Rings are are useful as well, um, but they They don't give as much information. So it depends on the bird to be, you know, it's ringed maybe as as a young bird or maybe it's ringed on migration in its first year. But unless the bird is controlled somewhere or found dead later, that information is is lost. And it just gives you two points of contact, Mm -hmm. you know, so you don't find out as much as you do with the radio tags. But it has been very, very useful. And like I said, there's been tens of thousands, if not more, hundreds of thousands of birds just banded, as they call it, And it it does tell them where the birds winter, where they pass through and where they return to, how long they live, things like that. Mm. So it's all all good information.
0: I suppose we have to talk a little bit about your own migration to Sweden. I'm sure you didn't uh, get here all in one go over the course of two or three days. How did you end up here in Stockholm and in Sweden in general?
1: Well, a couple of friends of mine came to Stockholm a few years before I got here in the year 2000. And a few of my friends had moved here um, before that point. And I was between jobs in uh, Ireland and was talking to a friend of mine and he needed a little bit of help out in the Dubliner. I'm sure a lot of your expat listeners will be very familiar with it. Mm-hmm. So I came over to give him a hand for a year or two and just liked it and stayed. So I ended up working in the Dubner for 15 years in total.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. You were a fixture there for so long. And then of course <laughs> really you, you would have and you're working with the, is it the International Eng- uh, English School now? Over yeah, look after town. the
1: building there. One of the skills, you know, so like I'm a vac master or a janitor or whatever you want to call it, facilities manager, that type of thing.
0: And if you were to choose now, Al, because like, obviously, you know, being at the Dublin, there was, you know, three o'clock closing. You'd be coming home at dawn pretty much, you know, every yeah. day and dawn in the winter, as we know, is around fucking lunchtime. But um, does um is the job you have now, is that much better for your boarding interest and fishing and that kind of thing?
1: Yes and no. Um, I mean... The nice thing about working in Road is it's extremely flexible and because I was working nights, I mean I could swap a shift, I was working three, four, maybe five nights a week and um, it was pretty much up to me, you know, if Mick or one of the lads was wanted a day extra, I could just swap a day out, you know, mm-hmm. or I could just ask on the roster for, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday or whatever it was, so it was very flexible that way and I mean quite often I wouldn't start work till five or six o'clock, mm-hmm. so it was quite useful for getting out into the field, but now I'm pretty much in the summer, I can get out in the evening any day, but um it's more or less weekends now, so mm. you just have to make the most of your time
0: Is there any birding at all to be done in Sweden in the winter, or is it very much a spring summer autumn interest
1: um there is birding to be done in the winter it's it's because it's so cold here, all of the insect species they all live, so ninety five percent of the the species in Sweden will live. Um, in the winter, but you do have certain species that stay, um, and other more interesting species like the northern owls, grey grey owl, hawk owl, that kind of thing. That will, in some years, come further south if the weather is quite harsh, or if it's been a lemming year or a vole year, a bumper year for rodents. And um, there may be a lot more juveniles around, so in those winters there can be quite a lot to see. Um, but it is tough in the winter. There's, there's less to see, but you you still find, you know, some interesting stuff in the winter. But like you say, it is very much spring, summer, and autumn that's the the bumper time here in Sweden. And
0: mm. um, you take pictures as well. Uh, you draw. You've I've seen some brilliant drawings of birds that you've done yourself as well. What's the most satisfying aspect of it in terms of the content, in terms of the sounds that you record, the pictures that you draw, and the photos that you take? What's your favourite aspect of it?
1: Um, I'm not sure to be honest. Um, I've I've moved more towards sounds and. Moved a little bit away from photography in the last few years. Um, a lot of people now take photographs in general, mm. so there's a wealth of photographs. But with sound, there's not much. There's very few people do it. So I find it very, uh, very interesting from that point of view. And there's a lot to learn from it, you know. Um, so you'll learn the sounds, even just the small fly calls and things. So it makes you a better bird watcher. So when you're out in the field, when you hear something, you know what it is straight away. Um, but with photographs, I found as useful as they are, and as enjoyable as it is to take photographs, there's a real wealth of photography out there. If you, if you tap in any species into the Internet, you'll you'll find thousands of pictures of any given species. But with sound files and vocalizations, there's very little out there at the moment. So it's kind of a new science that's just come along with it, the emerging tech and, you know, these small zoom recorders and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's where my interest, I've always been interested in sound as a bird watcher when you're out in the field you hear a lot of birds singing things fly over your head calling you might not be sure what it is but you know that's that was part of the learning process for me just to learn all these things
0: mm. and the comedian Eddie Izzard had this great routine about uh, you know all bird song being territorial so basically this beautiful song that you're hearing is actually them telling other birds to fuck off is that basically, true yeah. That, yeah, that's basically well, I, mean, it?
1: I mean when birds arrive in the spring they're absolutely hard word you know completely hard just to breed. So I mean, it's they they will obviously feed up. Um, they they, do, they when they arrive, they've just done a lot of them have done a large migration from maybe Africa or something like that. But they'll feed up for a few days, and then after that, they just they're absolutely hard work just to sing, set up a territory, and get a female. And the amount of energy they put into that is incredible. So I mean, birds are very very much you know programmed, pre-programmed to to breed, reproduce, and get the job done. Essentially, so in spring you'll hear anywhere you know you'll hear birds singing early in the morning, uh, throughout the night quite often. And really, I mean the thrush nightingale that you heard there will literally sing nonstop from dusk till dawn for a month. You know,
0: is, and, that, is that a male bird singing? Hey, baby, yeah. come and get me.
1: Yeah, it, it's generally speaking, yes. Um, I mean, you will have younger males maybe in territories that aren't you know theirs. They will be chased away. Quite often, younger birds don't have as varied a song or as loud a song. So mature males have uh, more more volume. Um, a lot of birds mimic other species. They put more work into their songs. And the females can recognize this. And I think it helps them choose mates. So song is very important to birds. So it marks out where they live, um, how successful they are as breeders. And, yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff. And do the females sing at all, Alan? Some females sing a little bit. Um, It's quite unusual. There is female song, but it's not as well developed as males, you know. Um, So the male will basically hold territory, try and attract the female. Obviously, they'll breed. And during the time the nest is there, a lot of males will continue to sing. Some don't. Some just get on and help with the breeding. But uh, most, most, most species are quite territorial. Mm -hmm. Um, You will have others that breed in colonies and stuff. So it changes a little bit there. But especially the songbirds, the, the warblers and things like that, they're very much uh, driven just to set up a territory and breed in that fashion. Hmm.
0: And when the males set up a territory, would they be sort of trying to attract one female for the season? Or is it right, let's get a bit of a harem going here? And, you know, when they stay on? Are they, Is there singing after that? Is that to defend that territory?
1: Yeah, pretty much. It's just to tell other males, this is mine, keep out. Um, some species will have, some, of the, some species like mute swan, uh, common crane, uh they they pair for life. Mm-hmm. Uh they'll return to the same territory year on, uh year on and year out. But I mean even studies with mute swans in Ireland by Richard Collins and stuff have shown that males can often have a second mistress, you know. So a sneaky
0: bastard. <laughs> yeah.
1: There's a famous uh, swan actually an in Oris Nuke there on a, a male I think it's gone now, but it was the oldest known swan in Europe at the time. But that bird had a second female across the River Liffey at another site which he he discovered so that they will cheat occasionally some of these birds it's it's quite interesting it really is amazing <laughs> to think like you know uh, if we could switch the focus a little bit
0: because yeah. it's not
1: just birds
0: that interest you sometimes other animals and in particular i'm thinking of uh your love of fly fishing and pike fishing is that does that come from a similar thing in your childhood
1: yeah i, I just like the outdoors i mean um i always again my father was interested in fishing my grandfather was a an all ireland sea fishing champion back in the day. So he had an interest in fishing. He used to bring me fishing quite a lot as I grew up. And that just, just kept going all through my life. So Sweden, as you know, it's full of lakes. And it's a fantastic place to go fishing. So, I mean, it's just it's just a good day to spend a day, you know, get out into nature and do a bit of fishing and float around on a boat or just relax. It's very relaxing. Mm.
0: And when you go fishing, because now again, I I know very little about fish, I know very little about most fucking things, it has to be said. But um when it comes to pike fishing, right, there are specific lures that you use to try to attract them, right? Do you you know, do you do it in the same way that when you go bird watching, maybe you won't be looking for a specific bird that you want to see or record? Do you go to catch specific fish or to find out about the environment that it's living in, or are you just looking for the biggest pike you can get your hands on?
1: Well, it depends. It's always nice to get a big one, but I mean it's it's quite nice just to go out and have a good day, but I fish rudder species as well. So like you say, I will target certain species at times. So a lot of people here don't fish much for things like bream and rud and tench. But I quite enjoy it because the fishing here is fantastic. Mm. So I enjoyed just maybe, tar- I, I targeted rud for a couple of years, caught some very big fish. The same, I mean, it's just a fantastic place to fish. I mean, some of the fish are enormous here. And again, there's there's nobody really out fishing here in general compared to back in, uh, say, England, where, you know, you can hardly get a space on on the bank in some places, it's so built up. You can just get lost here in Sweden, it's great. You know?
0: I mean, it seems to be a huge subculture, and by that I mean that the people, much like Birding, the people who are into it are really into it. Like, it's the only thing nearly they talk about, you know?
1: Would you consider yourself on that level? No, I wouldn't. I, I, I just enjoy a day out. I do take it quite seriously when I'm doing it. Me and a few other lads will go out and, I mean every every spring we go on a three or four day break. And we might up the dollar or you know a Vesta or somewhere like that. We just enjoyed a few days, but it's a social thing as well. I mean just having a bit of crack with the lads and having the barbecue and a few beers in the evening It's a great way to have a you know just stay in touch and just have an annual kind of get together but um Apart from that, the fishing itself is is a bonus. If you get anything big, it's great. But I mean, obviously, we do try and catch as many fish as possible, and the biggest, the, best, the biggest, the biggest one is always a bit of a laugh, you know, a bit of a competition. But I mean, it's just a way of getting out and just keeping in touch and enjoying outdoors. But, do you do you ever fish for food, Alan? Not really. Um, the odd trout, maybe I might take in the winter in Stockholm or something like that. I might keep. Um, but uh, not so much. I mean, I'm up in Vastabot now. There's a lot of uh, a perch here, and yep we'll have a few of those in the evening on the other evening, very nice. So, to a degree, yes. But generally speaking, no. So generally, you catch it, measure it, weigh it, let it go again.
0: Mm. There's a lot of people listening to this who will be, you know, sort of, uh, would have grown up around concrete rather than rivers and that kind of thing. Yeah. Is, it, is it cruel to fish to be doing things like that? Or, you know, or are they so dumb they don't even understand what's going on?
1: I don't know. I think there's, there's, there's levels to it. I mean, you know, people who take too many fish out you know, I always thought that fish should be should be let go, you know, especially the bigger fish, because they are important breeding stock. Um, it's very sad when you come across, you know, fish just just been basically clattered over the head and left kind of lying on the bank. And some people do that, you know, but it's terrible to say that kind of thing. If, if you're if you're going to take it out and kill it, it should be eaten. If you're not going to do that, don't kill it. You know, Um, I just believe in sport fishing, so I don't think it's unnecessarily cruel if you, I mean, we're quite careful with the fish. We'll net them, hook them carefully, you know, weigh them in a sling and let them go again. And there's a big movement now in Sweden to preserve fish stocks in that manner. And there's a lot of uh, people just trying to educate people as to how to handle fish properly, and let them go safely, you know, just because these stocks, you know, they're not infinite or not finite, I should say. I mean, these things can go down in population. So at the moment, there's a lot of work being done to preserve pike, especially in Sweden. Because it is important for the economy, you know, there's a lot of people come here as tourists to fish for these things. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a good thing if you, if you learn to fish in that way and just enjoy the fishing itself and not take too much out of it.
0: If we get back to the birds, Alan, you mentioned you've been here for, what, 23 years now, right? Yeah. I'm assuming that you've been doing some level of boarding all the way through. You mentioned you did it in your years in the Dubliner. Have you seen a change in the kind of species that you see, the times of the year? And I suppose this is ultimately a question about climate change. And if you can yeah. see that uh, in, in, in your sort of hobby or in, your, in what you're doing with, with birds.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've been bird watching since the late 70s, which is quite a long time, I suppose. So 40 odd years, and I mean, 40 years ago, there was a lot of species that were a lot more common. Um, Sweden is actually a slightly different scenario. A lot of bird bo- populations here are generally doing OK. Some of, some of them are declining, maybe 10, 15, 20 percent in some of the more alarming cases, uh, farmland species and stuff. But um, especially in Ireland, I've seen you, over the years, you know, things like Corleo now are practically extinct as breeding species yeah um yeah I think there's only there's less than twenty pairs left in Ireland. I mean there was hundreds in the seventies, and that's probably mostly down to agricultural practice um land is land use is is a big problem, and you know changing methods of agriculture, draining bogs, draining wetlands, you know just generally changing the landscape um just for whatever people want to use it for so a lot of forestry being cleared and, you know, not replaced probably not being replaced with native species um, and that's, it's a big problem. I mean, there's a lot of species, you know, Corncrake is, is another good one. Um, I've sent you a recording of that, which I recorded this year in Angarn at night. I went out to record it deliberately. The species is almost extinct now in Ireland. There's a few islands in the west and northwest where it's just holding out, there's a few pairs left. I'm not sure what the exact figure is. I wouldn't say there's more than 50 calling males left in Ireland, not much more than that, if that. And I mean, that was formerly all over the country. And again, that's that's agricultural, you know, it can't deal with machines. Uh, the young die when, when the grass gets cut with machines things like it needs nettles, they get cleared, hedgerows, you know, um, banks of uh, kind of cow parsley and things and all these habitats just tend to get cleared because farmers just want as as clean and clear a field as possible, you know, mm. and that's because of agriculture, like that's a good example, probably of a species that have, just cannot deal with modern agriculture. Mm. So that that's one species that, that comes straight to mind.
0: Um, would they be like, you know, because I mean, obviously technology, you no know, more than when you're bored watching technology has become great for it, but also I've seen it in dairy farming. Um, Colin, oh, what's the sort of, Colin who works at, he he's done some stuff for Delaval and communications. That Some of the yeah. stuff I saw through a dairy farm is just amazing. Like, you know, self-milking cows and this kind of thing, which you think, okay, that's great. It's less labor intensive. But do you mean then that are these sort of big industrial farms is essentially what they become? They're no longer small holdings in the West of Ireland or that, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I... I Bird populations generally do better when the small holdings uh, less pesticides is a big one Um less intensive like land management is a big one. So birds can't deal with things like uh, pesticides, they get into the food system, they can end up, uh, you know, laying eggs that won't hatch in infertile or with thin eggshells and um, the young can pick up the pesticides and die. Uh, if the habitat's not there, they just won't breed in the first place, they'll, they'll just move on. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it, it's very, very complicated. And it's never that simple, but anything, climate change now is interesting. It's, there's a big push now in Europe that a lot of birds are moving range, coming further, further west and further north. Um, And it's great for bird watchers in a sense that they get to see these things, things that were formerly rare are now common. So things like little egret, uh, spoonbills, uh, cheddies, warblers, uh, you know, bee eaters are breeding this year in britain um, and a, as great as that is for bird watchers it is hinting that something is wrong these species are moving you know range um it's probably too hot now in parts of iberia so they're, they're moving they're moving further north basically mm-hmm. so it, it's hard to know where it'll all end up um, it means they have longer to travel and migration uh, things like that their uh, habitat might be exactly what they need because birds are very neat, you know, they've evolved to fill a niche, very specific niche, you know, and if that changes, some can adapt and some can't. Some are more specialized than others. So whereas some species might do okay, others won't, they'll just die away. You know, others might just move to a different place. So you'll have some species will just move further north and they'll just disappear from, say, Spain and Portugal, um, or they just won't come as far in the winter. So you have things like Buick Swan now that used to formerly winter in Ireland. They don't anymore. They don't need to go that far because it's so warm in winter now in Europe, a lot of them are stopping in Holland. And the British population has, has dropped as well. So there's a lot of stuff going on with wintering birds and summering birds. So, but it's it's still, you know, there's very little data there because this is such a recent phenomenon. So it's we'll have to wait and see where it all goes, but I wouldn't be terribly optimistic to be honest, which sounds pessimistic, but. I can't see it changing to a degree. I think there's going to be a big, big change in the European ecosystem in the next 50 years, probably
0: why are birds so important to these ecosystems?
1: Well, they're a good indicator basically of, of what's going on in the ecosystem. Um, you know, you you can count birds on migration and get a good idea as, as to whether populations are stable, declining or increasing. Um, then there's they they count they have breeding atlas surveys stuff, so the information is there, and there's good information for the last 50 years very good information. Um, and it, generally, it tells a story of decline in, in a lot of species. Uh, there's some exceptions like starling, but even things like house sparrow declining something like 30% for the last 50 years. Mm. So, uh, birds are important because they, they give you an indication of what's going on, and um, they're quite easy to monitor, they sing. You know, you can count, you can keep an eye on populations fairly accurately and like I say, because there's a lot of information in the past, it's, it's a good indicator because they, they can analyze all these statistics and they can see the long trend and, you know, it's pretty instantaneous, they can get a year's, each year's data that goes in, tells a story, but when you put all that data together over 50 years, it's amazing that, you know, the graphs that will appear, things like common cuckoo, you know, for example, have crashed completely the last 50 years so all of these species it's hard to know whether it's going to speed up this decline or whether it will stabilize in some fashion
0: for somebody who's just wanted to wants to get into this or for somebody who just wants to know about the birds in their local area now as i say you've forgotten more about this than most people will ever know how do you recognize you know a, a bird how do you recognize or how do you tell the difference between a swallow and a sparrow when they're singing
1: yeah, well, hopefully, I mean, what you know, you hopefully you get a reasonably good look at the at the bird. If you have a pair of binoculars, all the better. I mean, every beginner starts out, you know, with a pair of binoculars. So basically, you just look at the bird. You you might on the most basic level, you might notice it has a red forehead and a red throat, and that will tell you straight away it's not a sparrow and it's a swallow. So what you're looking for is, is plumage details, and um, maybe voice. But generally speaking, for most beginners, it's have a look, see what what size is it what shape is the beak is it sitting on a you know in a branch is it singing all these things will give you useful pointers what colors any wing bars um anything obvious on the board and just make a few notes and then you can check in your bird book and hopefully get to a species pretty quick obviously some of them are quite difficult especially the females um but with time I mean you learn you'll learn things like calls songs and um, what birds look like and again you'll know straight away even after a relatively short term bird watching, oh, that's a finch, or you know, that's a warbler. So you'll get down to the family quicker, and then it's just a process of elimination, really. You know, and not all things are identifiable. You might you might just get a quick glimpse of something. I mean, some of them are elusive. So something might just jump out quickly and disappear. You might have a good idea what it is, but you might never see it again. But that's bird watching, you know
0: um what's the holy grail for you alan is there a bird out there that you would love to see you'd love to record or take a photograph of
1: there's loads of them <laughs> <laughs> no i mean it, i i there's a few now a lot of the stuff i i need to record in sweden for example but i will have to go very far north so a lot of the uh the waders and summer things like broadbill sandpiper, um and that kind of stuff i'd have to go quite a long way north temning so you're talking about specialised kind of Arctic circle, circle breeders there. So that that's one trip I'll have to make in the future. But I mean further afield and travel, I mean you travel a lot as a bird watcher as you get more experienced and uh there's all kinds of birds around the world that just love to go and see things like, you know, go to Alaska and see all that kind of you know, white billed divers and things like that. Just you know, generally speaking, really isolated, far flung places tend to attract me. Um because they're a bit special, you know. It's nice to see these places in kind of pristine, good order, basically. And mm-hmm. you kind of get a glimpse of what it might have been like kind of 100 years ago, you know.
0: How important is the whole idea of solitude, Alan? Because, I mean, you know, either fishing or boarding, it's it's very quiet, it's very contemplative, and it's also very close to nature. What does that speak to with you?
1: Yeah, well, I think I've always, I've always been drawn to the outdoors. I'm not sure why. It's just, it was... It's it's difficult to put a finger on. Um, I just like getting away from the city and just it is relaxing. Um, you do think about things when you're out bird watching and stuff. Some bird watchers are, are are more more garrulous. I mean, some some bird watchers in autumn will go out in groups of five or six, and they'll scour you know the southern half of voland for rarities or whatever. And everybody, it's different for everybody. I tend to be more solitary because I I like to sound record. So generally speaking. The less people who are around, the better, including other bird watchers. So, if you want to get good recordings, it's better to do it on your own. But that's more of a personal preference, really. But generally speaking, just to be out there and enjoy nature, that's what it's all about for me. It is relaxing. It's a good way of kind of recharging the batteries, and uh, it's a, it's a you see a lot of nice things. filled when you're you know, it's not just birds. You see, mm. you know, beavers and elk and animals. You know, things, and then just the sounds of it all, and just just the quietness. It's lovely. So that's that's. Pretty much, it's hard to. I could talk about it for months, but I mean, you don't have months. But yeah, it's just it is just getting out there to nature and relaxing and enjoying things. That's what it is.
0: Do, do you ever bump into other board watchers? So right, it's Thursday evening and you've gone Probably. off work at four. You do, yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah. do you get there and go, "Ah, fuck off now, lads! I want to record this board."
1: <laughs> no, no. I mean, we all uh, even I, I know a lot of the Swedish lads now, the Swedish boarders. Um, it's a very good social scene like that. You know, people don't realize. And in Ireland, as well, there's a very, very, there's not many borders in Ireland, actually. Um, no, maybe a couple of hundred serious borders, but it's a very tight community. So they do organize, you know, social events and stuff in Cape Clare Island in October is one of them. So, I mean, you bump into them in the field, you'll be asking how they are, how is the kids, how's the wife? I mean, you'll know them, you know, quite often. And then you, you'll share what you've been up to, what you've seen, um, share information. And with rare birds, especially um, there's a very tight knit community of you know WhatsApp groups and and that kind of stuff where they share information constantly. So if somebody finds a rare bird, they'll let each other know straight away, you know. So they share all that information, and you know if you need to go and record, say something like Longear there's a few people i would ring and they'd know maybe if they'd found a nest or they know where the birds are going to be in the autumn, calling or whatever. They'll let you know. So it's quite nice like that. It's a nice community. You know, of like minded.
0: D does it ever get competitive at all?
1: Oh yeah, very um I, I don't really twitch. I don't twitch as a twitcher is somebody who just rare birds. It's you know, it's a list thing. You know, so you maybe in Ireland or Sweden you'll have seen four hundred species at the top end. But those guys are, are extremely competitive. So I mean they'll they'll literally you know, the news will come through, you know, the short bill deucher has been found in, in southern Holland or whatever they'll down tills and go straight into the car and gone, you know, if they haven't seen the species in Sweden before. Mm. Um, and that's that's kind of, it's a more extreme, I can understand the fascination. It's, it's always nice to see a new species, but for me, it's just not it's not feasible. You know, I don't I don't drop everything and run just to see these birds, but lots of guys do, and they get extremely competitive about it, you know.
0: Well, is there any spoofing goes on there? Because you can go, oh, yeah, no, I saw this bird. And you go,
1: no, you didn't, <laughs> you chance and not so much actually. Um, it, it's unusual. It's it doesn't happen because, you know, if you're to, if you if somebody was to be caught out spoofing, they'd be pretty much not ostracised, but to be pretty much ignored, not excluded to that to that degree. But you know, your information would be viewed as dodgy from that point onwards. So you'd have to make amends, you know. Mm. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, you can make mistakes. Don't get me wrong. Um, and plenty of all everybody makes mistakes. But, I mean, very much, it's it's very honest pastime. Um, people will put sightings on, possible you know, sightings of things. If they saw something they think is almost certainly, they'll put it on as a possible or very probable, and they'll supply the information. Others might go and check it out. And some of these things turn out to be, you know, what they were, genuine genuine rarities or whatever. So, I mean, it is a very, very scientific community. Uh, they take it very seriously. And your reputation is everything in bird watching, you know, mm. like I say. So you try not to make mistakes, but it's, it's like I say, it's, it's quite difficult sometimes. You might be looking at something two kilometers away, flying south over the sea in a telescope. So you mightn't get enough detail, but you might think to yourself, I think I know what that was, but I'll just keep that quiet to myself, mm. unless it's in the same area. And then you might put out the news and get a few people to help you out to try and find the bird, mm. which happens quite often
0: we're coming into the late summer now and into the autumn um what kind of things can people expect to see in sweden what kind of bird song could they expect to hear because i'd imagine the mating season is probably over now right yeah
1: uh yeah autumn is migration time in sweden and it's it can be pretty spectacular if you go to the right location so i spend a lot of time on an island called Landsort, just down south of ninasam and that place is phenomenal it's a long slim island maybe two or 300 meters wide, but a couple of kilometers long, and it's just down the bottom of the peninsula of Ninasam there, and in the autumn, all of these birds are, especially on a westerly or southwesterly wind, they end up following the coastline all the way down, so they will start just moving down from Finland and stuff, and they'll come down the coast, and places like Lanzar just funnel them, there's a lighthouse there as well, which attracts birds at night, that are migrating at night, and in the right conditions, you'll just on any given morning in September, you'll see tens of thousands of birds just streaming south, everything from finches, pippets, uh, larks, you name it, woodpeckers going over, birds of prey, swans, geese, everything. And the, the numbers are can be staggering on a good day. So that's, it's, you know, it's the best time of the year for, for bird watching per se, because anything can turn up, you know. Mm. So you'll be watching these huge flocks of pippets, maybe meadow pippets and tree pippets, hoping maybe for something from the Far East, like a Richards pipit or a, maybe a Tawny pipit, in them. And for that, quite often, you're listening quite carefully because it's the call that gives them away quite often, you know, um, so that's where the kind of the ear kind of comes in quite a lot with bird watching in the autumn. But I mean, birds rest on migration, they'll stop off. Um, so any coast coastal areas are generally good. So after like onshore winds, maybe a bit of rain, especially that puts, that puts uh, migrant birds on the ground quite often. So you'll see them just feeding away the before they move on again. So it's quite an, it's an interesting time. And all bird watchers look forward to the autumn, especially September and October.
0: And if we dotted around the country just a little bit, right? So I'll ask you for one place up in the north of Sweden, say from Lulio to Javla. If there was one place along there where you could expect to see something, where would, that, where would you recommend there?
1: Well, it depends on the time of year i mean luis L- ibisco national park in spring is quite it's an incredible place to birdwatch. um well known for all kinds of special northern species breeding um on the east coast of sweden Öland is a premier site and then down in Skona, uh falstervo is, is a premier site you have because it's, it's uh close to denmark a lot of birds cross to the denmark there especially birds of prey and uh small passerines pippets and things so i think they see a peak migration there, even just chaffinch and brambling, they can see over a quarter of a million birds a day. Jesus. Yeah, it's mad. So you have these clouds of birds going over. There's a massive thing, massive, even things like wood pigeon. They all leave Sweden in the winter. So the, you just see this cloud in the distance, and then you realize, oh, it's not a cloud. It's a flock of wood pigeon. And there, mm-hmm. there could be, you know, three or 4,000 birds in the flock, and they'll just funnel over over the tip there. And you have the lads on the end, the official guys who count birds there. There's five guys there who have employed to count birds there in the autumn. And then you'll have a big group of people. And it's a good way you can in that in, in that instance you can stand in one place and the birds come over you. You know, you're not mobile, so you're just in one place. And that's the nice thing about a visible migration. You can just find a good spot. Um even in Stockholm places like the hill there in Hammerby where they ski in the winter, it's a good yep. place to see migration in the autumn in the city. You know. And these things are are you know visible in the city in the right place
0: and yeah. uh, when those flocks you mentioned the wood pigeons there, would that be only wood pigeons, or would you get like you know a budgie mixed up in there
1: somewhere, or a, a bird of prey or that to just go well, tag along for the ride? Well, they, I mean, they migrate generally in big flocks for a reason. There's safety in numbers from pra- predators. I mean, at Falstaba it's full of predators. There's always several peregrines there, um, there's marylands there, and they're sit- literally sitting there waiting. Especially in the autumn, they'll wait on the Danish side because they know birds will be tired after crossing the water and they just pick off the tired birds. Um, so pigeons migrate in flocks for that reason, that the safety in numbers, more eyes when they're feeding on the ground, when they're resting up. And then again, more eyes when they're in the air. But it, it confuses predators when there's a big flock of birds. Mm-hmm. So, and that's the reason they, most birds migrate um, in flocks during the daytime. And then a lot of birds migrate at night. So I've sent you a recording of uh, Red Wing, um, which I record um, on Land's a recorder which I leave out at night there and um, I just come along then, I leave it out for four weeks at a time and I come along and I just analyze the audio it it starts, it's an autonomous device so it starts recording when the sun goes down and stops at dawn and I listen through the audio I actually scroll through it in a a free software program called Audacity and then the, the calls show up as spectrograms so you'll see the call on the screen so it saves a lot of time And I mean, on a good night, last year in 31st of October, I recorded over just 9,000 red wing in one night, and that was a new European record. So uh, Mm -hmm. those Mm -hmm. birds will record, or sorry, they will migrate at night because they want to avoid predators. So that's what they do. And they generally migrate alone or in small groups. And a lot of smaller birds do that just to avoid predators. So in the evening, they'll, they'll take off, climb to altitude. And they'll they'll just start to migrate south and quite often if you get overcast conditions and a bit of rain it'll drop them down a bit and that's when you hear a lot of birds that's when you get the big nights of. And I mean it's even in the middle of the city I've I've uh, recorded at night and it's incredible the stuff that goes over even in the middle of town in mm-hmm. in the night it's it's amazing some of the stuff.
0: Alan, like I said, we could talk about this for months and as I say, somebody who knows nothing about this and i have only getting started, but I have another million questions but we'll save that for some other time. I'm just going to finish with one final question, right? Um, if there was one bird in Sweden that you could see, that you could photograph, that you could record to find out more about it, what's the only one that you haven't got yet that you really want to get?
1: Um, There's a few I haven't. That's, that's quite a question, Phil. <laughs> I'll be the next podcast. Um, <laughs> I don't know. There's a bird called Mamzel which I haven't actually ever seen. I've recorded them here in Vassabrat, and actually on this island. They they pass here in a I discovered a few years ago at night. They, they migrate down the coast calling. I've never actually seen one, um, but I, I'd like to actually record them, you know, in, in breeding season and get a look at one, but they're extremely nocturnal. They're, they're not relatively um rare as such, but they are more of an northern species. So that's definitely one species I'd like to see more of. And then I'd like to see a lot of the stuff on the breeding grounds in the Arctic Circle. Things like uh, long-tailed skua is one bird I'd love to see well on the breeding grounds. Um, but again, it's just a matter of making the time. And you know, like anything else, Phil, getting the time and cash together to go and, and do these things, you know, the bucket list. <laughs> Everybody has one. But yeah, someday I'll get around to that kind of stuff, you know. But um, yeah, for the moment, I'm just going to just enjoy what I'm doing. So just potter around the place and just keep recording and enjoying myself. Well, look, at, if you
0: if you come across any more wonderful sound files or whatever, just drop them this way. We'll put them in the podcast. But for now, Alan Dalton, thanks so much for talking to me. Not at all.
1: Thanks for having me, Phil.
0: There you go. And we finished up with a recording of the common crane there. Uh, I have to say that was just, I thought that was a fascinating conversation with Alan, and I'm not going to, yeah, lads, this is the greatest podcast in the world, I just found that he's an extremely interesting bloke, and so he wears the knowledge so lightly, you know, he knows everything about these animals, you know, and he doesn't come across as being, you know, I think the Swedish word is better this, you know, I know more than you, nothing like that at all, always really happy. to to share his knowledge about these things. And I just found it fascinating. As somebody who, you know, grew up in in urban Dublin, I don't know anything about these things. And you go into the country, I don't even know. I was telling him about this bird that wanders around the garden at the summer house. No idea what it is. And Maria has told me what it's called. I still have no fucking idea what it is. You could call it absolutely anything. But when you see them out in nature, and when, as Alan does, you pause and you look at them and you think about how they go about doing what they do, and their 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 sort of place in the whole sort of chain of things, of the environment and and you know, all these things. It's just it's fascinating, you know, the long journeys that they go on, how they are sort of, you know, hard word, as Alan calls it, uh, to, to mate and to reproduce and to go to certain places and how they navigate and all that kind of thing. I could have talked to that chap for absolutely ages, but it was um, fascinating and a privilege to have a chance to have a chat with him. And I hope to get a chance to do so in the near future. Look him up on Facebook because a lot of what he posts on Facebook is to do with... Um, Fish, it's either fishing or boarding is basically mostly what crops up, certainly in my feed anyway. Alan Dalton, D-A-L-T-O-N, from Dublin, uh, talking about fishing and boarding there. Fascinating character and an absolutely lovely bloke. And I can't wait to sit down and have a drink with him at some point in the near future. And I actually said to him when that conversation was over that um, I might go out with him some evening. Now, I have a feeling, a suspicion, that in my inability to shut up for any given length of time will make me the worst boarder of all time. But I might go out with him at some point and see... Uh, what we can do and see you know he was saying that some birds aren't you know tame wouldn't be the word but they don't mind human beings because look at they're all around us anyway so um they're quite used to having us around the place uh one last thing before i go this week there's a lot of um, things starting to kick off now. I'm hoping to bring you an interview with a traditional Irish band um, a musical actor who are coming here in November. I think they're playing at Stalat, which is a place made famous by Brian Burns of the Irish community. Mine's a great gig that Brian Burns and his band have held there. Congratulations, of course, to Brian, who got married during the summer. They're very sneaky, very sneaky. Said head Off he went there. Uh, just a few guests out there by the water I think it was somewhere out in Orkish Bayer, but um, Brian is one of the original band of brothers who was part of the Stockholm Gales did everything coached the team played for the team You know, took the odd red card the odd hard tackle for the team which just a fantastic bloke a brilliant brilliant musician a fantastic engineer huge Liverpool supporter a uh, fantastic dad to his son who lives in, uh, in Gothenburg in Gothenburg, he lives in Germany. Where am, I, where am I getting that from? But yeah, no, so there's this uh, Irish band coming over. And that sort of struck me that, you know, um, if you do hear of anything, anybody coming and playing, you know, we heard from Ian Maloney re- uh, releasing his book. They published his own book, Bastard Boy. You would have heard him on the podcast. Brian O'Connor. Uh, and his new band and that kind of thing. So if you know of anybody who's coming over from Ireland, don't assume that I know about it, right? I know I'm a fucking know-all the best of times, but don't assume that I know everything. And I'd rather get, you know, one message too many than not hear of something at all. Like, you know, we had Dara Brian coming over there and I hadn't heard anything. I hadn't seen an ad, I hadn't seen anything. And by the time I sort of tried to get in touch with Dara, the gig was almost over kind of thing, you know, and we couldn't sort of uh, give him any publicity or anything like that again. So if you hear of any Irish artist, musician, band company anything else like that do get in touch and uh, we'll try to give them a little bit of love on the podcast here and let you good people out there around the country know when uh, things of interest are happening in your part of the world so if you've any of that just hit me up on social media uh, leave a comment somewhere, the LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever it is, you know, just find me and let me know and I shall stick it into the next podcast or as soon as I can get it in there, you know. And the other thing is, uh, there's a thing called Fan Club, right? It's a new app. It's a place for There's an awful lot of Irish musicians on it already. And the reason for that is that it was started by friends of mine, uh, Declan and Anna, his wife Anna. She used to organise the MTV Music Awards. I think she actually did the one in Stockholm about 20 years ago when uh, Roland Keating was over here. But what they're trying to provide is is a platform for musicians to showcase themselves and to interact with fans and to be able to sell merchandise and to be able to sell music. And this is, you know, the idea is to have exclusive music there. So, you know, it might be an exclusive live performance. It might be a demo of a song, you know, that kind of thing. Now I see the Mikey Hanrahan, the wonderful, wonderful musician who's uh, one of the driving forces behind the Irish band Stock, uh, Stockton's Wing. Mikey's on there. Leslie Dowdall from Intua is on there. Roy Buckley, uh, one of the prides of Cork, a fantastic singer and songwriter from Cork who's getting very popular in America these days and I think he was touring with the, it was the High Kings or somebody like that no well, look at you know the Dublin City Ramblers possibly he was touring with that you know but there's some great no it's not just uh, sort of trad or or ballads or that kind of thing it's all sorts of pop music and and uh, hip hop and r&b and all that kind of thing is out there as well i think the service itself costs like 50 euros a year And Deck and Anna, their idea is not, you know, to make millions off this. The idea is to provide this, sort of, you know, conduit from the the artist to the fan and provide this sort of meeting place. So most of that revenue, you know, once the whole thing is, the expense are paid for, the revenue, the idea is that it all goes, or as much as possible, goes to the artists. Because, one thing the pandemic taught us was that you know these things are it's very very difficult you know spotify is a great service i have it myself my family use it we use it religiously but in terms of you need to get an awful lot of plays for anybody to make any money out of it and we need to sort of find ways of making sure that with brian Friel plays his banjo or if Lockie releases an album that that we can support them and we have to be prepared and the same goes for this podcast lads and for blind boy and for the second captain to so that kind of thing that You know, and Sweden is kind of pretty much a a good bit further down the road, maybe, than what our friends back in Ireland, our family back in Ireland are. We have to be prepared for pay to pay for these things because otherwise, it's not sustainable. You know, you can do these things as a hobby, but if you want to be able to do it professionally, if you want to be able to put a you know, if you want to make this your life's work, well, then it has to be sustainable. And it is that principle, Brian boy calls it the soundness principle. It's like, okay, you know, it's free, but if you can't pay for it, do. And there's an awful lot of times, and I do it myself where you go, yeah, that's free, deadly. Now, that doesn't mean it's, it's. it's free to, to make the thing or it doesn't cost anything to make, you know, but if you see value in these things, things like Fan Club where you can f- sign up for 50 euros a year, this podcast, the Second Captains is a great service They just does great stuff on there every day uh, because it's of that or advertising and, I think you kind of have a little bit more freedom. You know, I'm hugely grateful to Martin Hessian and Veerstroms who are another one of the sponsors of this podcast and Martin has been there probably since the very beginning uh, and supported this podcast because he sees the value both for himself and his business but also for the community. Uh, you know, like he gets something out of it. Hopefully he's sitting listening to this in his car now and he's enjoying it just as much as you are, enjoying Alan Dalton talking about reports but also he sees the value in it to everybody else, to lads working above a Lulio who might only visit this pub fleetingly if at all, you know, and that's the kind of thinking we have to stop thinking of okay what am i getting directly out of it to okay is this worth having in the world can i support this you know and you know i think most of us do it those of us who are certainly in a position to do it we do we support charities and we we have our you know subscriptions to maybe an irish newspaper or to spotify or that kind of thing so hopefully that's coming down the road but have a look fan club ltd dot com is uh where you can go and check that out <clears throat> and as i say <laughs> i think they're actually now this may have been a joke that Deck told me via WhatsApp but I think we are actually in Paris the other day watching Ed Sheeran and hoping that Ed Sheeran might bang up uh, you know, some sort of a video of him playing a song into his phone or something like that but it would be great to see and if you can have that sort of exclusivity and, and that sort of access to an artist, you can send them messages and that kind of thing I think it's a fantastic idea uh, I am obviously biased because I went to school with a chap and his wife is a great friend of ours as well, she, they're just magnificent people it would be great to see that kind of platform survive and thrive and indeed if you are one of the wonderful Irish musicians like Brian Burns, like 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 Ian, like uh, Brian Frail, like Lockie. You know, if you want to be part of this platform, get in touch. We'll put you out there as well. The lads in the Black Donnellys in Las Vegas are on there as well. Right, listen, I'm waffling now. We're over an hour already in the first podcast back after a little summer break. So we'll just keep going now. Um, We'll keep chipping away until Christmas. I have a few plans for people to talk to. Again, one very, very last thing. Women. Women of the Swedish-Irish community Reach out Right The lads, no problem The lads will talk Like myself and Alan will Forever, right But I want to hear your voices People want to hear your voices You have things to say You have things to share Get involved Get in touch And we'll put you on there as well Listen in the meantime take care of yourself take care of one another i should be back again soon god only knows if it will be the birds or the bees or the pike or whatever else it is might be something completely different but to find out you'll have to tune in next sunday morning from uh, next sunday morning next monday morning from seven o'clock in the morning fucking hell sat long since i did a podcast now i can't even remember what time it comes out take care of yourselves and i'll talk to you again very soon